You're listening to Sound Opinions, and today we are taking a broad view on the year in music, how different segments of the industry are reacting to the pandemic that has defined 2020. We'll get to live music and record stores later in the show, but first we're going to talk about the digital music industry. That's right, Jim. Over the course of 2020, it seemed that no digital music service was doing more to respond to the reality of COVID-19 than Bandcamp. On March 20th, they announced that for 24 hours, they would waive their transaction fees and pass everything directly to artists and labels. An amazingly generous act for these uh, artists and labels who were struggling since live music had been shut down. That was the birth of Bandcamp Fridays, and I know a lot of music lovers who participated in that, including us. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's a routine they repeated once a month for the rest of the year. So we are uh, fortunate to be able to speak to Andrew Jervis, who is the chief curator at uh, Bandcamp uh, and the host of the podcast, Bandcamp Weekly. Andrew, thanks for coming on Sound Opinions. Greg and I have been talking for years about the vast source of income for most musicians, most working musicians, is performing live. As of last March, they have had that taken away from them. But now... Without live performance, it seems more dire than ever for uh, streaming being the new dominant way people are listening to music not to be paying the people who create that music. Um, Is part of the mission of Bandcamp trying to offer an alternative to not paying musicians? I guess that's the basic question. (laughs) Yes and no. It wasn't really why we started out. But I would say that this year particularly has brought into focus for a lot of fans that there are great ways to listen to music out there. But Bandcamp is also a place where you can sustainably support your favorite artist or your favorite label on a regular basis in a more fun way, in a way that's a little bit closer to the source. So obviously, yeah, I'd love to be in a club with you watching our favorite band coughing and sneezing all over everyone but we can't do that right now right (laughs) right so i think the beginning of the year we just thought look what's the way that we can help best while that big source of income has gone and in this instance that meant just put more money into the pockets of artists and labels uh and and create these band camp fridays where fans could pay and a hundred percent of the money that they're paying artists and labels would go directly um to those artists and labels that they want to support so it wasn't the original mission you know the original idea is just to enable artists and labels to sell directly um but obviously this year everything's been heightened so much well that's that's an interesting point um I read a, a great quote that Ethan Diamond, the major domo of Bandcamp, gave to Damon <laughs> Krakowski, who is a musician and a writer, where Ethan said the goal for Bandcamp was not to be a streaming service, but to be a record store and a music community. So before the end of the world last March, Bandcamp was keeping a reasonable 10%, am I right on the figure, of music sold through the platform, and then 90% went to the musicians, right? Something like that. It's between 10 and 15%. Right. It but, depends on yeah. whether it's physical product yeah, or exactly. digital download. Yeah, but okay. you're, you're in the ballpark. Yeah. Which is not unreasonable because if you're selling T-shirts as a punk band at a rock club, they may ask for 10 or 15% yeah. of the cut. Well, and what I'm seeing here, Andrew, is sort of a, a combination of an old school kind of approach to record selling by an indie label, let's say, which was the revenue sharing model that you described. The artists are getting 85 to 90% and you're keeping 10 to 15. 
which is super generous, and then you're bringing it into the digital realm. So you're sort of combining the two eras in terms of what your business model is. And that, to me, seems fairly unique in, in terms of what else is going out there. I mean, who do you view as your quote-unquote competition in, in this market? Yeah, we try not to, honestly. We don't really pay a lot of attention to what other you know, quote-unquote platforms do because none of them really act in the same way that we do. And, but to be clear for people who have not been on Bandcamp, I can listen to an album and decide yes. that the friend who recommended it to me was completely wrong, say for Greg, Greg recommending to me, and I'm saying, no, I don't want to buy this. Uh, so I do not have to buy. I can stream an album at a time to sample music that you recommend or my friends recommend that I discover uh, just surfing around Bandcamp. It's almost like the honor system. If you really like this, hey, if you streamed this 10 times this week, you ought to buy it and support that musician. Why do you think people are doing just that? Well, a couple of things. Um, we, we do think that streaming is a great technology. So we, we don't, we're not anti-streaming. So if we can enable fans to hear something before they purchase, great. There are some limits in place, and you as an artist or a label, you're in control. You can set so that none of your music is streaming if you want, right. but I can tell you for sure that that will hinder your sales, that we've built a following where on Bandcamp, fans still buy more albums they do singles something like between five to two and five to one i think the the industry standard for the rest of the world is 15 tracks for every album so what you have is a, a community of album loving artist loving music adoring fans who want to show off and show their love for their favorite band on their sleeve. It's it's the yeah. fans that want to buy the tour T-shirt. They want to buy the deluxe version of the box set because they're completist. Well, and where I was going is your your comparison to the brick and mortar beloved uh, record store hosted by knowledgeable clerks, uh, maybe yeah. occasionally snarky. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, that's that's essentially what you've created in the digital realm because uh, you know the you know the famous scene in High Fidelity. I will now sell five copies of the three EP. He's by the beta band. Do it. You know, right, I can right. listen to the beta band and then decide if I want to buy. Who is that? The beta band. It's good. I know. Yeah, totally. You're right. And the great thing for me is, and I'm supposed to be staying on top of the music that's coming out on Bankham, it'd be impossible for me to know about everything. So I now consider the thousands of fans that I follow around the world, my, you know, they're my, like my little helpers. There's kids in, in Tokyo or Rio who are buying music from their local bands that they know about, that they're friends with or in or whatever, that I would never know about otherwise. I love the model. I love the business model. And I'm, I'm drawing on a couple of comparisons here from 10, 15, 20 years ago even, uh, you know, when Wilco uh, put out a record that got rejected by their label and essentially gave it to their fans for free, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Then they put it out officially six months after and said, hey, you know, if you want to buy it, you can buy it now. And they sold like nearly a million copies of that record anyway. Radiohead, Within Rainbows, 2007, pay what you want. Then they put out the record officially, uh, higher fidelity, a few months later, and ended up selling, what, three million copies of that record. So mm -hmm. the, I thought that's a great business model. Put it, put it in your fans' hands. But what about the new guy? What are the chances that the new artist, who nobody knows, 
puts their music up for free and a bunch of people sample and they go, yeah, that's pretty, pretty cool. What's the incentive for them to pay? I mean, how do you sort of build that culture? The fact that there is community is, is the first thing. The difference between Bandcamp and a, you know, setting up your own site as an artist is that when I buy music from just your own site, I'm an island. That's the end of the story. But on Bandcamp, you have this opportunity to tap into a great community whereby fans will turn other fans onto music. So, you know, if you sell 200 of something, the community might kick in and make that 300. Or if you sell 2,000, it's 3,000. Or 20,000, it's 30,000. Without you having to do a whole lot, except, you know, check a few of the simple boxes, boom, off you go. You don't have to pay to play or hope for placement on a playlist or do banner out. We don't do any of that. This isn't one of those sites that sells music next to toothpaste. And I think that those community is willing to pay because they know that for the most part, the money that they're putting down is going closer to the source. You're not subscribing to Bandcamp. It's not $15 a month or whatever for Bandcamp. The $10 or whatever it is that I'm spending on an album is going closer to the source. And the majority of that money is going to that source mm. rather than some corporate third party who might also want to sell you a, a car or a yeah, device. Right. Well, so we're skirting around naming them, but Spotify valued at what? $54 billion. $54 billion as of today, roughly, on the stock market, is uh, you know either selling you toothpaste uh, next to its streams or charging you $15 or whatever it is each month. Famously, musicians are now trumpeting the injustice, as they see it, of earning 0.0038 of a penny. <laughs> For a streamed song. Is streaming justifiable? I think that there are models out there that have yet to maybe prove themselves sustainable in the long run. Um, that maybe uh, a lot of artists and labels will find unfair. I think there's a decent chunk of artists and labels that do make money from companies like Spotify. And there's probably a reasonable amount of fans that discover music on those services too. And that's great. But as a fan, you have to ask yourself, what kind of fan am I? And how can I be a patron of the arts in a way to my favorite bands and labels? How can I help them keep doing what they're doing other than just listening in a kind of passive way via a, a, a service that I pay to listen to whatever I want to whenever I like? One of the funny things about this year is that um, there's been an awful lot of press that's pitted Bandcamp against Spotify or Bandcamp against streaming services and we you know we haven't instigated any of that but we've been lucky to be on the end of a lot of good press this year and, and it's great to see people have that penny drop and realize that hey you know if, if there are artists and labels that i really do want to support and do it in a meaningful and sustainable way well Bandcamp's a good place to do that well and Bandcamp fridays i mean i think that was the reason for the good press yeah uh for you sure. know yeah, yeah. Uh, the reasonable 10 to 15 percent that Bandcamp holds back from bands selling digital or physical merch on the site you waive that for every friday since covid struck you know and fans responded uh bands responded with with great like thank you for giving us a break yeah actually it was every first friday the first friday of every uh, month yes yeah first friday of every month which means we've done nine i think if my math is correct and on those nine days, fans have paid artists and labels over $40 million. Yeah, which um, is extraordinary. 
Well, in- incredible. Well, yeah. you guys are doing that, and hence the comparisons because you guys are doing that. And meanwhile, Daniel Ek, the head of Spotify, is saying artists aren't working hard enough. Yes, there are many things about the music business that upset me. Uh, tips too. I really don't like this idea of of tips that artists should ask for for tips. It's it's like a, akin to. Well, you know, you want to make some money, she goes down in the corner and hold out the hat and, yeah. you know, stand there and strum along and, and see what people give you. It's We're talking about art. We're talking about people's blood, sweat and tears. It's it's worth something. And about Bandcamp Fridays, we didn't know how successful they were going to be. It was just our, like, idea of helping fans put a bit more money directly into the pockets of the artists who need them because they can't tour. The fact that a whole lot of labels said, okay, well, we're going to also turn over our portion to the artists. And also a lot of artists and labels said, hey, this is great, but you know what? I actually, I don't need the money right now, but in my community, there are organizations that do, whether that's a food bank or whether it's a voting organization. People raised an awful lot of money for charities and people other than themselves from this idea that started as, hey, let's just give you a little bit more money. And that's what I think made this special. Of course, well, you know, a lot of great music was made available. It became a great way for people to drop live albums, one-offs, COVID collaborations, if you like, funny records that might not fit the usual schedule. But then also, you know, Bjork made her entire catalog available on Bandcamp and, and donated money to Black Lives Matter. Animal Collective made their entire catalog and unreleased stuff available on a Bandcamp Friday. All of that is great. None of that was intended. Yeah. Just yeah. grew out of people's enthusiasm for wanting to support uh, their favorite bands and labels. Will the first Fridays continue into 2021? That's a good question. We're mulling it over right now. Um, there's a few cons, but mostly pros, and I'm sure we will do something. We have already obviously committed to doing a Juneteenth day, mm-hmm. which is to be on no rev share uh, as we did this year and donated to the NAACP. And what else we do, we'll announce sometime in the next few weeks. I we haven't quite made our minds up yet. We have been talking to Andrew Jervis, the chief curator of Bandcamp. Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, the first time I ever laid eyes on you was my first year at marching band camp. Do you have thoughts on Bandcamp? Have you participated in Bandcamp Fridays? Send a voice memo to interact at soundopinions.org for us to use on the show. When we return, we'll look at the live music industry and how it's coping with 2020. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis, and we're looking at the year 2020 and its effect on the music industry. Sound Opinions listeners, Greg, probably know Andy Serzan as our annual Christmas elf, uh, but he's got a hell of a day job, too, yeah, uh, as as uh, one of the talent buyers for Jam Productions, one of the great remaining independent concert promotion companies based in Chicago, working throughout the Midwest. Uh, Andy, we wanted to get your perspective doing this now for I dare I say, going on three and a half decades probably, right? It had to be a hell of a day in mid-March when everything stopped. Yeah, well, even more frustrating that we had some just spectacular shows lined up. You know, we had a, a bunch of tool shows. We had a bunch of Tame Impala shows. Wilco at, in the park, Pritzker. It was shaping up like it was going to be a great year for the concert industry. So it did feel like the... 
you know, rug got pulled out from under us, but then it quickly segued into uh, the whole planets. And this, this is just a, a mess. And I think most of us stopped feeling sorry for ourselves pretty quickly. <laughs> it's just, it became very clear, let me say, that there just couldn't be any shows until they could be attended safely. And that, that drove everything and got everybody real out of the sad sack mode and into the, okay, let's figure out what we can do now that we can put some positive momentum into how we come back from this. A lot of the artists, rightfully, and, and thank God, didn't just say, well, then I'm just not going to tour. They said, oh, we still want to go out. And so we've done a lot of, you know, uh, you'll hear more of these reschedules coming up and stuff, but a number of them have already rescheduled and and uh, have new dates in the future. I'd just like to hear it for somebody who books the United Centers, the Wrigley Fields, right? You know, where would America be without that uh, infrastructure of clubs of 100, 150, a couple of hundred capacity? It wouldn't exist anymore, right? We would have no live music scene. By the time something gets in my world, it's, it's pretty much kind of established, but the only reason it's established as a live entity is because these clubs took the first risk on it and helped these guys develop their careers. So you can watch them and put it together and go like, wow, these guys probably could play this bigger room next time and make more money. And then, you know, they can actually rather be starving musicians, maybe make this a career. And, you know, that's just how it works. It's organic and old school. It's not like, you know, chemistry or something. It's, it's how it works and how it needs to work. And it, if you're a music fan, I mean, you should be going out there right now and trying to figure out how you can help, uh, you know, keep these places open. We've been talking to Andy Surzan, Senior Vice President of Jam Productions in Chicago, about the state of the music industry and the fate of the clubs in this uh, pandemic time that we're living in. Thanks, Andy, for coming on the show. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. That conversation with Andy Surzan was recorded a few weeks ago. And I noticed that he sounded uh, considerably more hopeful than the folks we spoke with back in September when we first reported on the challenges facing the live music industry. Greg, since we spoke with Andy, there have finally been a couple of pieces of good news. Shortly before Christmas, the Save Our Stages legislation at long last made its way through Congress as part of the latest COVID relief bill. It'll provide about $15 billion in financial aid to independent live entertainment venues to help them pay their bills until it's safe to reopen. Just a few days before that, as the first vaccines were being injected, Dr. Anthony Fauci said that if there's, quote, a full court press to get everyone vaccinated through the spring, people may be able to return to theaters by early summer. Of course, that is a big if. Dr. Fauci said if only 50% of Americans are vaccinated, it's going to take much longer. But even under the optimistic scenario, by June, most venues will have been shuttered for nearly a year and a half. The debt they accumulated during that time means many may never reopen especially if reopening means they must operate at a half or a third of their usual capacity. Nevertheless, there's hope, and the story of how we got here is a remarkable one about an unprecedented, unified effort and months and months of work by music industry activists. Back in September, we spoke with several of them about their efforts. Now we're going to listen back to that story, first aired just after Labor Day, Jim, you started by asking about the risks posed by gathering for concerts. 
Greg, we're recording this in uh, in early September. I turned to one of the top infectious disease experts in the country, Dr. Emily Landon uh, from the University of Chicago, and asked you know this question: When, <laughs> when do you think we're going to be able to enjoy live music together again? Unfortunately, I think the best place to gather to listen to music in the coming days is going to be outside as we sort of start with the vaccine and get things underway. But by the time the vaccine's really getting out to people, that's not going to be a great time to be outside. I think next summer we're going to see a lot of outdoor bands and activities and concerts. Okay, so you, you as a classical fan, you're thinking you can go to Millennium Park next summer and see the Grand Park Orchestra. We can go to Union Park and maybe see Pitchfork. They'll look different, but that's maybe in our future. I think that's exactly right. I think, you know, it may not be quite the same. I think picnics where you can keep distance might be acceptable, but especially if you're going to be crowded around, then masks are are necessary. So outside, I kind of think of it as masks or distance, but inside you really need masks and distance, especially while we're sorting out what the effects of ventilation are. And like, I know everything about the ventilation in my hospital, but the majority of buildings are created to recirculate air so that we can be more efficient with our heating and cooling. And that is not awesome for spreading viruses. I think it's going to be real tough. I think we're going to need that that sort of masking and distance on the inside. And that's going to be tough for concerts. You know, it's interesting what the doctor is saying about the conditions under which we would have to see live music uh, in the post-COVID or near post-COVID era uh, as we're dealing with vaccines and masking and social distancing still. Uh, You know, that just doesn't make sense for a lot of clubs and theaters. If you're going to see a rock show uh, maintaining social distancing, the whole thing is about being excited about the music and massing together and and viewing it as a community. And to sort of keep that spacing uh, seems very antithetical to the whole idea of having that common experience in a club with a great band or a great artist. Now, there's also an economic uh, side to this as well, right, Jim? You know, absolutely, Greg. Uh, Audrey Fix Schaefer, who works uh, publicity for some of the best venues in America, the 930 Club in Washington, D.C., and uh, Meriwether Post Pavilion in uh, in Maryland, um, you know, she is saying that the only thing worse than being closed as a music venue, whether it's 150 or several thousand capacity, is only being able to open at 25%. The economics aren't there. And that's because it costs so much money to open up and to staff. And you are not going to get a sliding scale on your rent at 25%. And you don't get the bands to play at 25%. And you can't, you know, nobody would want to ask a patron to pay four times as much. And really, the, the economics of it so much are to, to get as many people into a room as the fire marshal allows, and hopefully they go to the bar a lot. Yeah, and right. um, <laughs> so you can't have people drink four times as much either. So no, no. The, the, the economics of it are bad. You know, at this point in early September, Greg, uh, all the club owners I've spoken to, coast to coast, say they have no idea when they'll be able to reopen at anything resembling uh, the way they used to present music. And that is that is absolutely heartbreaking. And you can hear that in Katie Tutton's voice. She is one of the co-owners of The Hideout, a small club in Chicago, 150 capacity. It's just, uh, she's hurting uh, for the music community, for her, her own business, for the staff, 
for the musicians. I believe that we probably won't be open until the summer of 2021, but that's simply a guesstimate. Uncertainty really is our enemy here. We are unclear as to when we will be able to open. So here we are. And how many people is that at the hideout that have been without work since, uh, since March? 34. Wow. 34 people, many of which are uh, musicians as well. So it's a double whammy for them. We have kept uh, two people, our manager and our talent buyer, our programmer. But our other staff is now collecting unemployment, which is, you know, $400 a month in some cases. I think it's clear that uh, we're in a world of uh, doubt and anxiety when it comes to the future of the clubs. They're all feeling it right now. We're on the precipice of a nuclear winter, you know, for the live for the music arts, scene yeah. you know, right now uh, in, in the world and in America specifically. Now, there has been some action within our congressional leadership to help the clubs, uh, but not in a way that was effectively able to help the clubs. The payroll protection plan, for example, Jim, uh, didn't really work out the way they had hoped, right? Uh, Many club owners were reluctant to take payroll protection program money because uh, they wouldn't be able to repay it. You know, you are only waived from repaying it if you show that you can hire back the people who lost their jobs because of the pandemic. Here's Audrey Fix Schaefer again. Well, first of all, when you're completely shuttered and you can't hire your employees back no matter how much you would love to, that means that that program is not a grant, it's a debt burden, and which is the last thing that independent venues want right now is more debt because they don't know how to see through the other end to be able to pay it off. But when the pandemic hit, um, there was a handful of us independent venues that realized pretty quickly that there is absolutely no way to survive as a business when you have zero revenue, enormous overhead, and no federal support. And so we did what we've never done before, and, and that's come together. And within the first week, we had 350 venues, and uh, now we're actually up to about 2,800, and we're in every single wow. yeah, about in wow. every single state and Washington D.C. And yeah. uh, it's because we share one thing, and that is that we have no way to survive without this federal help. Chicago, in particular, you and I have both done decades of reporting on this, was ahead of the curve in the venue owners here putting aside differences and banding together to begin to face business challenges posed by gentrification and onerous city laws. The fact that they were able to do that gave a model to a national organization. So the Chicago Independent Venue League, hey, this is a good idea, led to NEVA, the National Independent Venues Association, which at this point represents virtually every significant independent music venue from coast to coast. We turned one more time to Audrey Fick Schaefer, who is now the national spokeswoman for NEVA, the National Independent Venues Association. I got a text from uh, Dana Frank from First Avenue. The famous club in, in Minneapolis, Prince uh, Made Purple Rain. Yeah. I had met her very quickly at a, a dinner, but then I get this text from her saying, hey, um, you live in Washington, you must know some some lobbyists. If we don't go ask for federal help, we'll all fold. 
I looked at that text and I thought, that's hysterical. That's like sending someone in LA a text, hey, I've got this script. You know a movie star and a director, don't you? I thought, oh, she's so cute. But as it turns out, I'm in D.C. and I do know a lobbyist or five. But she was able to get support for it because those they don't come cheap. And uh, she was able to, to round up a couple of people. And within a week or so, uh, an association was formed. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, here we are. So this National Independent Venue Association didn't even exist at the start of the year. And now there's a couple of thousand of these, you know, infamously rogue entities <laughs> yes. that have decided to come together and work together for the first time in their history, probably, uh, to affect some change. How much have they been able to accomplish? Greg, I think that the venue owners have been heard on Capitol Hill. They have raised their voices loud enough to get some attention when there are so many things vying for attention right now. Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat of Minnesota, got together with Senator John Cornyn, Republican of Texas, to write what's being called the Save Our Stages Act. It would provide $10 billion in aid. Uh, key parts of the legislation would enable the Small Business Administration to make grants for the lesser of these two amounts, either 45% of the operating costs from calendar year 2019 for small venues or $12 million for larger venues, um, specifically targeted in both cases to indies. We're not talking about the companies, the mega global corporations that put shows on in the giant arenas. We're talking about either small 150-capacity clubs or uh, theaters that have a capacity of several thousand. Here's Senator Amy Klobuchar. You've got these places like Moorhead, Minnesota, uh, that have yeah. this beautiful amphitheater. Literally, people were crying yesterday when I was there because this is so a big part of their community. And I yes. think it gives people hope to think we can at least keep our act together through the pandemic. We know there's going to be another side so that we won't lose these venues and these places where new stars come up. Smartly, I think, the senators who wrote the legislation Klobuchar and Cornyn are looking at this as an economic engine, right? Live music is a $9 billion annual revenue generator for this economy. I'm not even talking about comedy or theater. And 90% of those venues not reopening means that's a heck of a hit to the economy in the United States. You and I wrote uh, more than a decade ago about a study from the University of Chicago Economics Department that said that for every dollar spent at a live music venue, $12 is generated for the businesses surrounding that venue in the neighborhood, other restaurants and bars and parking, right? So, you know, the, the senators are optimistic that if they look at this as business, this is an economic fact that we need to help these businesses, and that is giving them reasons for optimism, that there will be bipartisan support, um, not just because we all love music, but mm -hmm. because it makes business sense. We actually have nine Republican senators on the bill now, including the Republican senator from North Dakota. And it just goes to my argument that uh, we think of the big venues and the big cities sometimes and Broadway, which we could never want to lose. But it is also about all of these mid-sized and small towns across America. So one of the reasons we're getting more and more support is we are limiting it to make sure that it doesn't just go to big guys. 
yes. Ticketmaster and Live Nation got a $500 million investment by the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund right. in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, that did not happen to the Moorhead, Minnesota Blue Stem Amphitheater. All right. Right. So that's why I think it's really important that people understand we limited this bill so that it would help some of the smaller venues. But what about the fans, Jim? Well, you know, it's extraordinary. Katie Tutton, co-owner of The Hideout in Chicago, said that early on, uh, one of those Washington, D.C. lobbyists whispered in their ears that if they could get 50,000 messages to Congress, uh, that would be fantastic, unbelievable. There are now more than 1.8 million messages wow. that music fans have sent their representatives saying, we need help for these venues. Here's Katie Tutton, co-owner of The Hideout, and a key mover in civil, the Chicago Independent Venues League. When we put out the call to action, 1.8 million people called in in support of us. And I think that the electeds are going to listen to their constituents, and I'm hopeful that they will. And I think now they realize that we are the hardest hit. We are the first to close. We will be the last to open. And I think now it's kind of sinking in, and I am very hopeful and optimistic. But as our mutual friend Joe Shanahan would say, support without action is meaningless. You know, you may have seen this in the news, Greg. On August 18th, Senator Charles Schumer, the Democratic minority leader, held a press conference with James Murphy of LCD Sound System, <laughs> friend of Sound Opinions, and other musicians outside a Brooklyn venue called Baby's All Right to discuss this Save Our Stages legislation. And the senator made a pledge in language that reminded us that he is a New Yorker. He <laughs> said, I'll do everything I can to get this done because it's so effing important. This is our cultural heartland. Uh, this is how we breathe and live and feel. It's what makes Brooklyn special. It's what makes Albany and Syracuse special. And people have so many memories, as you asked me my memories. I'll give you an example. How I saw this was an interesting. I ride my bicycle all around Brooklyn. So there was something at a park called the Jelly Pool Concerts. And it was, it was like a live venue, but it was at a park. And I saw people lined up, and hundreds and thousands of people, young people mainly, but of all different, you know, diverse backgrounds, races and creeds and colors, coming in and enjoying each other. And then I realized, you know, on that one day with 2,000 people there, probably 50 friendships were made that will last a lifetime. And so they wanted to close the Jelly Pool Park, you know, the Parks Department, as you said. Our cities don't like this, some of the other. And I kept them open. And actually, Jay-Z and uh, Beyonce were there to greet me when they kept it open because they, they liked this and would come and hear the music, not to perform, just to listen. So this is a story we're going to stay on, Greg, because uh, I can't uh, imagine one that is more important to the future of what we have covered on Sound Opinions for 15 years. What are we going to be left with if we defeat this horrible virus and, and America's healthy again? What kind of an America are we going to have? Well, absolutely, and it's the one thing we're looking forward to, I think, uh, the most in some ways. When this ends, whenever it ends, we're going to get to see live music again. But will there be stages to have that live music? As I mentioned before, since we first aired some of the interviews in this segment, the Save Our Stages Act has been passed by Congress after months of delay, and money should start flowing to these venues. Whether it will be enough remains to be seen. But there's finally some hope that we may be able to celebrate the end of this awful pandemic with 
live music, coming together to hear live music again sometime in the second half of 2021. When we return, we'll hear from a few record store owners on how they adapted this year. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. Drunk at the Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week we are looking back at the year in music from the industry perspective. Or what's left of the industry, Greg. So far we've covered live music and we've covered the explosion of streaming, uh, the popularity of Bandcamp in particular. To me, there's one other uh, member of the music industry, Holy Trinity, and that is the mom and pop <laughs> brick and mortar record store. Absolutely, Jim. And we we do love them. There is nothing like flipping through crates of records and finding that gem that yes. you've always wanted. And there it is. You can hold it in your hands and you can buy it and walk out with it. That is an experience that has been really hard to come by this year for a lot of cool record stores and a lot of consumers. Even before the pandemic changed everything, there were big problems that record stores were facing. Major label distribution got really unreliable due to corporate consolidation moving all the physical stock to one warehouse in Indiana. And then there was that massive factory fire in California that threw a wrench in the vinyl manufacturing chain, adding a new bottleneck to the biggest growth area in physical music sales. Yeah, you you know, Greg, uh, apparently vinyl sales are through the roof, but it was existing stock because I've talked to uh, three different musicians who say there is a six- to nine-month wait to press their new vinyl. That's got to be incredibly frustrating for the musicians to get their music out there and the consumers who are waiting for this stuff. I mean, what else is there to do but listen to records right now, right? Oh, and you can go on Bandcamp (laughs) and, and support the band by ordering the vinyl, but not if the band doesn't have the vinyl. Exactly right. Uh, But once COVID-19 shut everything down, these issues are paled in comparison to what store owners were facing. To learn more about how they've adapted to all the challenges of 2020, we spoke with a couple of record store owners back in September. First up was Brittany Benton of Brittany's Record Shop in Cleveland, Ohio. So the shop, I would say it is located at the intersection of uh, 65th and Fleet in Cleveland. It's a I would say it's a celebration of black music and culture. A lot of people like to move around that word, but no, I focus on hip hop, reggae, soul, and jazz. I started talking to other uh, black crate diggers, DJs, you know, record collectors, and they were talking about the treatment that they got. You know, they were just like, well, that's why I usually dig out of town or I just dig online or on Discogs. And I wanted to create the environment that was not just welcoming to my own, but welcoming to everyone. I see a lot of young people who their first vinyl experience is shopping with me and that's people of all races and they feel you know comfortable right at home there's somebody making beats over there I have a set of turntables set up right at the door so DJs come in and spin so they get to see vinyl being used in every aspect of like hip-hop or DJ culture and they see how central it is to the um, to the community and so I feel like it's a little mini cultural center gallery space and it's just like a little it's like a little soul shack you know, Brittany, in retrospect, uh, you opened uh, towards the end of March 2019 in Cleveland. Probably not a super smart business decision then, given the challenges record stores are facing. And then the world ended a year later in March of 2020. Are you hanging in there with the store? I've only seen like exponential growth post-March this year. You know, even after I had to shut down for about five weeks, the, mm-hmm. the brick and mortar. But because I had a website that was in place, 
and I was always act very active on social media, which I think versus the other record stores in the area and in general, you know, I don't think they're owned by millennials. So, you know, being so active on social media, already having the full website set up for e-commerce, things just scaled up amazingly. I'll say what makes my situation extremely unique is I don't know. I might be the only black woman in the country that owns a record store. Yeah. So when Black Tuesday happened, my shop must have caught on to some algorithm. And fortunately, I was listed in this piece by OK Player about eight black owned record shops to support. Mm. I just like the it just blew up after that. That is fantastic. To hear. <laughs> so, yeah, it was completely the opposite. From the beginning, um, as much of your, your vision for it was, yeah, sell records, right, sell music, but also you wanted a center of culture. Yeah. And right now, we, we can't have that. We might not be able to gather in any number to enjoy the sort of concerts we all love before the end of 2021. You know, so that part of it has to have you a little sad. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at the shop, I was always from the perspective of, you know, music whether it's soul or hip-hop it's not so much a commodity but you know it was an action something that was participatory you know being a dj you know i've been in several groups and whatnot so we actively participated and so i wanted my spot to be a place for that so you know i would have monthly beat makers nights where i'd have a lineup of producers every weekend i have djs coming and spin vinyl and i would even do little pop-up shows so i would say because i have a smaller shop and because of social distancing and slashed capacities, it's like I can't have those events where I have a standing crowd of like 20 extra people plus people digging for records. Because yeah. I don't want people waiting outside to come and dig because somebody's, you know, jamming to the DJ. Right. You know, right. so, you know, I've been experimenting with other things like via live streams and still interactive, like where I can trying to make the best of it. But, you know, it's, it's definitely changed some things. You know, you, you, you were shut down for a couple of weeks, a couple of months mm -hmm. for the pandemic. What did you have to do to get ready to reopen? Plexiglass, hand sanitizer, masks? Well, basically, I just had to um, adhere to the capacity because my shop mm -hmm. is small. It's like 500 square feet yeah. and it's just really records and the turntable. So I believe my capacity right now is like seven or eight people. So okay. it's, <laughs> you know, it's really one person per crate. Yeah. I just have to keep an eye on capacity because certain days or if they find out somebody's DJing, I have to kind of make it seem like it's something I'll stream, but I'm not encouraging people to come unless they want to buy records. But also because a lot of people have been a lot more weary about going out and about, the website has seen just exponential growth. Yeah. I've always had customers who were, you know, they used to come to my old record store when I was on the west side, but they were like, yo, we're not coming to the hood. So if as long as you put stuff online, we'll buy it and you just ship it to us, you know. So it went from people who were just like that to, yo, I'm afraid to leave the house, but I need some entertainment. I'm going crazy. And now I'm shipping or then people like, yo, I found this hashtag about you being a black owned shop. I'm from Poland, you know, and like <laughs> it was it was crazy, That's you great. know, like now most of my customer base is, is from Los Angeles, mm. you know, so wow. it's just a total change. So really right now, um, my new normal is just maintaining the, the pace with the online store. And I've um, always been open just half the week to the public. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it, it works itself out. You know, I, it's like I haven't missed any meals over the yeah. pandemic, fortunately. Cool. We have been talking to uh, Brittany Benton, DJ, 
and record store owner in Cleveland, Brittany's Record Shop. Thank you, Brittany, for coming on Sound Opinions. Thank you for having me. I want to make a road trip now. Get some pierogies and go buy uh, Brittany's uh, Record Shop. Yeah, pierogies, hit up a microbrewery, and, you know, do it up the Cleveland way. All right, we want to talk to a record store owner in Asheville, North Carolina. Not just a record store owner. The owner of one of the coolest record stores in America, Mark Capon, Harvest Records. Welcome to Sound Opinions, Thank you. And I should say I am co-owner with my friend Matt Schnabel. I just don't want him to... Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So we want to check in uh, with record stores like your own across the country. It was a challenging time a year ago. (laughs) But if times were challenging, merely challenging, merely having you bite your nails a year ago, they've had to be absolutely harrowing since uh, the COVID shutdowns. Indeed, yeah. My nails are, they're pretty raw at this point. But I... uh, yeah, it's been an interesting challenge, but to be totally honest, it's given me and Matt, my business partner, a level of rejuvenation. It feels almost like it felt 16 years ago when we were opening the store, when we were just yeah. here all the time, just kind of like figuring it all out, as opposed to it running like a well-oiled machine, which is, you know, it's not doing right now. What? prompted you to open a record store a mere 16 years right. ago record stores were already dying they were yeah we got a lot of uh sideways looks and you know our parents kind of rolled their eyes and in 2004 it definitely was a you know the vinyl resurgence had not happened yet i think we just believed in the idea of we're going to create a space that's fun and engaging and welcoming to whoever wants to come in and talk about music. It was as simple as that. And never did we have dollar signs in our eyes or anything because that had kind of already faded. You know, that was already like, you don't get into record stores to make money. So that we didn't really care about that. It was just more like, let's, let's make a cool place in a cool town. And that's what we did. How are you coping uh, in the COVID world? Mm-hmm. Am I able to walk in to uh, Harvest Records today? So you are not able to walk in, and you wouldn't have been able to walk in since, I think it was March 16th or 17th. Um, but we, and, and what happened then is we basically took a month off just to, for everyone just to stay home and do nothing. Um, and then we start later in April, we started to come back and started doing curbside pickup. And, um, you know, we started upping our mail order game and, and also putting some stuff up online on Discogs that we normally didn't have as much stuff up on there. And then also we started offering um, local deliveries, which people take us up on sometimes, which is pretty fun. Wow. <laughs> you get in the car. I get in the car. And you... You drop off my Wilco record. If exactly. It was yeah, I'm. I'm like, let me know somewhere where uh, it's not going to be in direct sunlight, so that we don't want the records to get warped. And and you know, people were always so excited when they would see it. Yeah. Someone delivering something in your house, generally, you're pretty excited about it. So it was a nice vibe. But there is no streaming service algorithm that is going to do exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when realistically. Can you have those in-stores, those conversations, well, those those shoppers? We, I mean, technically we can now, and we could have for the last couple of months, to be honest, mm-hmm. um, legally, you know. But um, 
honestly, we're going to stay closed in this way indefinitely until we know that it's safe. As much as we could enforce rules and six feet and all of that, it just still feels irresponsible. I'm not placing judgment on places that have opened because we have friends with businesses down on the street that have opened and they have done okay and that's fine, but we've just felt it's really important for us to stand our ground until we know it's wow. safe. That is not a capitalist attitude, Mark, but a noble one. It's been okay. We felt really strongly loved by our community. It's nice. That's a wonderful thing. But nothing is going to beat me being able to go through those stacks and find something. I can't leave your store without. No, it's true. I mean, the best we got right now is I two or three days a week, I, I just film myself flipping through used records. And, <laughs> and like, that's the best experience I, we can get from most people. But I will tell you this. They are rabid when I when we post those videos. It is wild. People are just like... <laughs> I gotta get there first. Yes, they're just like, dibs on the Buddy Holly, dibs on Billy Holiday, dibs on Tom Petty. And it's just like, it goes so fast. It's crazy. That is absolutely brilliant. <laughs> we have been talking to Mark Capon, co-owner of Harvest Records in Asheville, North Carolina. I so want to come visit you now, Mark. Come on down. I mean, you know, we can make an appointment for you. If you if you want to travel, okay. come on down. Well, because the Moog factory's in your town as well. Oh, yeah, just down the street. Since we spoke with Mark, Harvest Records in Asheville has started taking appointments for two customers at a time to flip through the stacks in person. Uh, you know, given that record stores are a center of community, Greg, uh, that they're as isolated now as every place else. They're missing something. Do you have thoughts on the challenges presented during 2020? Is there an example of a clever adaptation in the music industry that we missed? Let us know. Record a voice memo and email it to interact at soundopinions.org. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have one more wrap-up for the year that was. Um, I'm going to present uh, a preview of my annual mixtape, and you are going to offer another round of buried treasure. Yeah, I'm leaving 2020 behind. I'm moving into 2021, <laughs> my friend. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions was produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne.